Doctor. Welcome into another week of Dropping Dimes. I am your host, Matt Nost. Uh, I am rolling solo today, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I want to talk about the race for the eighth seed in the West. It It is fantastic. It is utterly fantastic. Teams, you can really feel the sense of urgency um, that every possession matters. And there's a, a full-on battle royale, night in, night out, from these four teams. Now, others within this context, you know, your Pelicans and your Kings, they're done. They have no chance. And at this point, you know, they've got to do some sort of searching as to what the future of those teams hold. It's got to be just a, a bitter pill to swallow, knowing that, Say the Kings easily could have drafted Luca, and they would be in a much different situation right now had they done that. You pair him with Buddy Fox, or pardon me, Aaron uh, De'Aaron Fox, and then you have Buddy Heald coming in off the bench or something, or you have a three-man lineup with the those guys. Just like we'd be talking about them potentially where uh, Dallas is right now, you know, in that seventh spot and securely held within the bosom of the playoffs. But no, the Kings are out and the Pelicans are going to be out. Now the Pelicans have what appears to be a bright future. They've got a young core of guys. Brandon Ingram's an all-star and could be a perennial all-star. Zion, if he can stay healthy, is a franchise transitional piece. And uh, Lonzo has been up and down, mostly down in this bubble. But who knows, another year with these guys, like when him and, and Zion are playing together, they have a real connection between the two of them. Just like uh, when you watch Jokic and Michael Porter Jr., they have a connection uh, between the two of them, and it's fantastic to watch. But So the race for the eighth seed and ninth seed, that playoff game into the playoffs, it's between four teams. Right now, Portland is in the driver's seat, and then just below them is Memphis uh, Phoenix and San Antonio, all three are tied for that ninth position. And I'd like to start off by talking about the red hot, red hot Phoenix Suns. Phoenix has rattled off seven straight wins. I looked it up when on basketball reference, it's their longest win streak since 2009, 2010, the Oh nine, 10 season, which they had a, a 10 game win streak there. And that was in the tail end of the Nash era. I believe they made the Western Conference Finals that year and lost to the Lakers uh, four games to two. And it's been a decade since they've managed to rattle off all these wins. Now, the context of the wins thus far, all right, here's who they've played. Their first game was against Washington. That's a gimme. Washington is rolling out basically a glorified G League team. Rui uh, Hachimura is their best player. And then after that, it's a trying to get run from all these other guys and see, you know, which of these pieces can fold in nicely with Beal and uh, John Wall and potentially Bertans. Let's see where he goes and at what cost. I don't know that uh, Washington will be able to afford him, but we'll see. We'll see. But Phoenix takes them down 125 to 112 in the first game. Not surprising. The The Wizards should not have been invited, um, although it's good for their young guys. And, and the league is talking about once certain teams exit, they'll be bringing in, potentially, they've talked about um, 
bringing in the other teams that didn't make it into the bubble. That way there's a safe environment for these teams to get some practice and to basically have a small camp type of thing instead of being away and uh, being forced to just kind of use the facilities, uh, you know, uh, one at a time or however their their locality deems it, uh, you know, prudent. So they beat the Wizards. Phoenix beat the Wizards on the first one. Not that big a deal. And the next game, they, they beat the Mavs 117 to 115. Now the Mavs had all their starters and they got good games from Doncic and, and Porzingis. And Phoenix still won. Close win, but a win is a win is a win. So they got a two-point W there. That's a legitimate win. The next game against Clippers, same score, 117 to 115. Clippers had everybody except Montrez Harrell, and Phoenix wins that game. And they got uh, a pretty damn good game from Kawhi and a you know a so-so game from Paul George. But still, this is a team that I think could easily, not easily, but that could win the championship. They're deep enough. They have enough roster flexibility to pretty much take on uh, anybody. I mean, size on the interior is probably the Clippers' biggest Achilles heel. Uh, that being said, they can make up for it with shooting and wing defense. Um, so the Clippers, you know, are within the content, the the discussion, so to speak, of top three, four teams that have a legitimate shot of winning it this year. So long as everybody stays healthy and Phoenix beat them 117 to 115. That's a solid win game after that against the Pacers, the red hot Pacers. Well, the red hot TJ Warren up until this point, And this is the first time TJ Warren had a mediocre game in the bubble. And, uh, I think he had, it's either 12 or 16 points in that game. Just, Played like the DJ Warren that had played for Phoenix previously. And they they whooped the Pacers 114 to 99. And they also got double doubles out of uh Booker and Aiden. Like solid games all around. Quality win right there. Next game after that is against the Heat, 119 to 112. Now the Heat didn't have Jimmy Butler, and also as a team, they shot 30% from three, which is very unheat-like. So do you attribute that to cold day shooting and no Jimmy or increased defensive prowess from the Suns on that 119 to 112 win? I don't know. But either way, you know, you play the team in front of you and that's still a fairly deep team. You have an all star in Bam and that trio of young rookies who are all pretty fantastic in uh, Nunn, Harrow and Duncan Robinson. So another win. Then they take on OKC and they destroy OKC 128 to 101. Now, OKC had no Shea Gilgis, no Schroeder, and no Steven Adams. Once again, you're just playing the team in front of you. You beat them. You still had they, you know, they still had Chris Paul. So it's not like they were completely without any of their main guys. But at the same time, they're not going against an OKC you know, team at full strength. But they beat them and they beat them handily by 27 points. That is an ass whooping. And then finally, yesterday's game, which, you know, they beat a team with no Embiid, no Simmons, no Tobias Harris, no Al Horford for their four biggest pieces on this Sixers team. And in that first quarter, if you watch the game, they were getting outperformed. Mike Scott looked like an all-star 
so watching it, you're like, okay, is this where it slips away? They didn't come in taking this game seriously because they knew all these guys were going to be out. And perhaps this full head of steam that they had was beginning to peter out. And then they turn that around. They ultimately win the game 130 to 117, but they have rattled off seven straight wins. And as numerous people have pointed out, and one did, uh, you know, to me on, on Twitter, they can win all these games Phoenix can and still not make it in to the playoffs, which is crazy talk. So what, what has been the difference for Phoenix? If you look at the stats, so you can go pre-bubble versus bubble. Now, their um, offensive rating in pre-bubble was 110 points per game. In the bubble, it's 118. So they're scoring eight more points. It's 110.2 to 118.7. So 10.5 points. That is a massive difference. And the other side is the defensive rating, 111.3 versus 107.5. Now, in in the context of that, Aiton hasn't played full complement of games, and he gives them some defensive presence on the interior, but he's also he's also got a tremendous number of defensive lapses. If you watch, there's you know one to two plays a game where he just watches uh, an offensive player on the other team blow past his teammate. And instead of shifting over to contest at the rim, he just stands there, say at the free throw line when he easily could have shuffled over three, four feet and made a contest. And he doesn't. He just stays kind of stationary. He does that a couple times a game where it's, if I was a Suns fan, I would be supremely frustrated. But as he gets more and more and more, you know, a game time and reps within the context of the offense and the defensive scheme, and the more playing time he has, hopefully he rounds into being a solid defensive center within the league. But I think on the defensive rating, it's really... Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson being inserted into that starting lineup. I mean, Mikael Bridges gives them length and defense plus three-point shooting um, that they sorely lack and need on a consistent level. And all of this has done, been done, rather, in the absence of Kelly Oubre, uh, who is their second-leading scorer, I think, at 18.7 points per game, just a tenth of a point above DeAndre Aiden at 18.6. So is that the difference? Is it getting Cam Johnson, a rookie, a 23-year-old rookie, but a rookie nonetheless, into the starting lineup um, alongside Mikael Bridges, which gives them a little bit more defense, and with the extra spacing of Mikael shooting more threes and whatnot and uh, putting the ball in Booker's hands a little bit more? Because that's the other interesting thing about this. In the bubble, their assist ratio is actually down. Um their effective field goal percentage is up. Your Their true sh- shooting percentage is up. Uh, so is pulling Kelly Oubre Jr. the catalyst to both sides of the ball? It gets them closer to being what they, in fact, actually are long-term. Now, they've also, you know, fortuitously gotten some good three-point shooting from Ricky Rubio. Uh, DeAndre Aiden has shot and hit a three, a couple threes, I believe. So that hasn't been exactly consistent through the regular season. And a lot of people attribute this to the jump for Booker. That's the big, you know, tremendous uh, change for the overall complexity or complexion rather of the Suns. 
And if you look at his stats, they're roughly the same as they were pre-bubble. So I don't know that you can fully attribute it to Booker. It's got to be nice, though, for the other teammates to know that they have someone of that caliber and quality to rely on at all times. But it's not like he went from, you know, 22 to 24 points a game. Now he's averaging 30 to 32 points, and it's been this huge jump, and you can attribute the massive uh, offensive rating leap to his increased production on the offensive end. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not saying that Booker isn't part of the reason that they have rattled off now seven straight wins. You have to give a lot of that credit to him. I mean, look at that last second shot against uh, the Clippers, the turnaround win. PG was right in his face, but Kawhi was there too. And he does a little fadeaway, little shimmy fadeaway, and just right in PG's eye. And technically, PG wanted a foul against the Lakers in that opening game where he got nudged by LeBron. I believe, if memory serves, off the top of my head, he hit uh, Booker on his shooting while he was shooting on his offhand, on but still, that's part of the shot. So you could call an offensive foul there. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I remember seeing it and then seeing the replay in time. And it's like, up, oh, PG, see, it goes both ways. You didn't get the call there, but you also didn't get the call against you. It's late game heroics. Outside of against Dallas last night, where it's pretty flagrant when Trey Burke just kind of ran over Damian Lillard you're not going to get that call, especially when, you know, it's a PG versus LeBron or PG versus Devin Booker, as opposed to a Trey Burke versus Damian Lillard. Stars are going to get the calls more often than not in the NBA. That is a fact. That is something we have all known for the duration of our NBA viewing lives. So is it just taking Oubre out of the equation? I can't pinpoint anything else. Is it that he's too selfish a player? That they have he likes to have the ball in his hand so it stops the offense um, overall and it reduces the flow and the ball movement? I don't know. I mean, I've never been a big Ubre fan. Um, he's always had the potential, but I'm not entirely sure that he's come to fruition. He just... He's always had a chip on his shoulder, and I could never exactly tell why. Perhaps it was he felt he was should have been higher, should have been a bigger prospect. Um, but he's he's irked me in the same way that Dion Waiters has. There's a huge ego there, and I've never seen all that much to back up the ego. Uh, but I could be wrong. I mean, Suns fans, let me know. Perhaps you're missing Ubre, but. It's not, you know, the evidence doesn't bear that out on seven straight wins. Uh, so I don't know. Um, we've had a uh, a couple comments so far, and as I put out in the tweet, I will, uh, uh, you know, bring up the comments as they come in. This is from Eric Ritz. Uh, didn't get to catch the Bucks game last night. Thoughts on the Giannis ejection? I'm a big Bucks fan. I think it's good for Giannis to get a bit chippy. Don't want to get uh, pushed around or thought of as soft. Well, I don't watch college basketball anymore. It's just, it's too frustrating for me to watch. I really, you know, when you see it, like when I watched one game of John Morant, it was in the tournament and 
because I had heard the hype of this dude is a lottery draft pick. And I wanted to see him. I wanted to see because sometimes you hear that hype about players and you watch it and you're like, yeah, I see what they could be or how they could potentially fit in an NBA offense. And saw John, and you're like, yeah, no, this dude is ready to make the jump. So my point on this is Mo uh, Wagner or Wagner, you know, potentially, however you want to pronounce it. But Mo Wagner, all I saw on Twitter last night is uh, if you're not a Michigan fan, no Big Ten fan uh, liked him. And, I, you know, I've watched a lot of Big Ten basketball. Um, they Those those guys do exist. The hustle players that you love to have on your team is the same thing with Joe Kim. Noah. I couldn't stand him on Florida. And when my bulls drafted him, I understood why the fan base there was so loyal. So I think Giannis was sick of Mo doing apparently Mo like things. And, uh, I have to confess, I've only watched a handful of wizards games this year, and it was mainly just to watch Beal and Hachimura and Bertans. Um, so I don't know that much about Mo Wagner or Wagner or however in the world you pronounce it. Um, I, I keep wanting to say Wagner, uh, Mo Wagner, but by all accounts, he's a punk, and more than likely, he had this coming from somewhere. Is it an ejection? Yes, in today's NBA, that is an ejection. If this were 25 years ago, nah, you'd probably just get a foul um, and nothing more would have come of it. But yes, yes, it is. And what will be interesting about that is, so Giannis, I believe, has a suspension for the next game, and that's when Memphis plays them. And that changes the dynamic. Now, Giannis was never going to get a ton of run in that game, in my assumption, because they've got the number one locked up and probably play like uh has done other times 15 or so minutes a game uh maybe 18 but just to keep his legs kind of you know and his his conditioning in tune with the playoff run that is going to come but there's no point in doing what the Lakers seem to be doing with LeBron still playing him a lot of minutes and the rationale that I've heard there is because he's 35 and he had a four-month break even if he puts in all the time that he does and all the conditioning and the money that he invests in his body. It's still a difference of a 35 year old needing to get up to playoff speed as opposed to a 25 year old who can kind of flip that switch a little bit uh, quicker. So perhaps that's why, you know, LeBron is still playing relatively heavy minutes uh, this late within the bubble, but we'll see going forward. Um, and I also like the two. Uh, why not? It's it's a good throwback to the way the NBA used to be. And our next one is from Suava. It says, Booker is no surprise, but the rest of the team stepping up, especially Aiden, is nothing less than shocking. Yeah. With no Oubre and no Aaron Baines, because Baines also opens up. You'll have a big that can shoot threes, and that just frees up driving lanes for Booker and for Rubio to draw defenders in and do a kick out. And if Baines can shoot threes, that also draws the rim production of the opposing team out to the three-point line unless they run a switch. Uh, so he unlocks, you know, quite a bit for them. And it is surprising to watch. They play with a confidence that I haven't seen by and large from Phoenix. 
Now I've watched, I watched more Phoenix games this year than I did of the wizards. But at a certain point, once they became the Suns again, just like, ah, unless the matchup is super intriguing. Uh, I don't know that I, I'll tune into something else on that night, but it's crazy to watch it. I, the only thing I can come up with is that it's Ubre. Ubre is, is the difference in this. Yes. It'd be nice to have Aaron Baines back, but Ubre, your second leading scorer, taking him out, you would think that that would, you know, uh, just equal doom for Phoenix and they have thrived. They have thrived to a degree that it almost makes you think perhaps they need to shop for some sort of package and get Ubre out of here to just make sure that they've opened up all that playing time for Bridges and Cam Johnson. Because Ubre, if they make the playoffs, Ubre will be back for the opening round, is all I've heard thus far. But do you mess up that chemistry? They're playing really excellent, fluid, and dynamic basketball right now. Um, so I don't know. Now, their main competition coming in are the Portland Trailblazers, who last night, Dame went full Dame time, 61 points, just firing from everywhere on the floor. And what makes them potentially lethal is in the past, if this was last year's team or two years ago's team, so Dame goes for 61, but CJ had a bad game, especially by CJ's standards. But by average NBA, if you're going to shoot that many shots, he did not have a good game. But they have Carmelo there as well. And Carmelo dropped in 26 points, efficient shooting. He was clutch when they needed him, hit a, uh, I want to say, two threes late in the game, one for sure. Um, with like two minutes, two and a half minutes left just to keep the moment because the back and forth, it was one three and then the other team comes down and answers with a three and then, you know, they get a layup and a little mid range down on the other end of the court. It was a back and forth and a back and forth, a really engaging game, but to have mellow there and Gary Trent jr. Has finally cooled down from three points. He's gone one for six, the past two games, uh, because before this, in the previous five, I mean, he was arguably the best three-point shooter in the bubble, which he's not a bad three-point shooter, but to become the best, it's really impressive. Um, and a lot of guys were saying it was the bubble, that that court atmosphere could really help certain shooters because without a crowd behind it, your depth perception may not be uh, skewed as much. Um, and it seems to have benefited certain shooters. Uh, I think the the greatest evidence to the effect of the bubble on shooting is at the free throw line. Free throw percentage is up something like uh, 3%, 4%, something along those lines uh, across the board for all teams. Um, I'm sure there are some that are roughly right around where they are and others that are even higher, thereby averaging out that you know roughly 3%. But free throw shooting in the bubble has gone up because you don't have the fans distracting. You have a better sense of depth perception uh, without all the crazy noise. Perhaps it allows guys to just relax and focus on their shooting motion as opposed to trying to tune out the white noise of the crowd. Um, so Gary Trent Jr. has just come back to earth a little bit. We'll see in this next game 
how he rebounds, but Portland, you know, watching that game, you're like, Oh man, they have really fought to get here. And I am pulling for them in the opening round to make the eighth seed, because I think that they would make the most compelling matchup against the Lakers. The Lakers want anybody, but Portland, anybody doesn't matter that Phoenix is hot. Now you got to play the Lakers in the playoffs and let's see if all these young guys can actually do it. Cause Rubio is the old guard and everybody else is young. So can these young guys really pull it together in the playoffs for Phoenix for Memphis? You have no Jaron Jackson jr. So it's John Morant and Dylan Brooks just having the green light to shoot as much as Dylan Brooks apparently wants to shoot. Doesn't matter how efficient he's doing it. And you need someone to take the shots, but damn it, man, there are certain points where you're double and triple teamed and you're jacking up a three and it's tough to watch. If I was a Memphis fan, it would be frustrating as all hell because if, if somebody's going to shoot in double coverage, I want jaw to shoot it. And jaw's getting roughly the same amount of shots. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's good to see the confidence in your shot from a young kid in Dylan Brooks. Um, and the team would be different if triple J was there. But the Lakers would take them. The Lakers would also take San Antonio, um, who is super interesting. Right now, DeMar is leading all scorers in the bubble in the fourth quarter. He's just super clutch, and it appears like basically the rest of the offense does the, the lifting through three quarters, and then they just turn to DeMar in the fourth, and he's fresher, and he's just like, go do DeMar things. Um you know, don't shoot any threes because you don't want to shoot any threes. There was a great one where he did a step back or he caught the ball over in the corner wing and stepped up and got his foot right on the line. Like he did a little dribble to get in rhythm, to get himself a a set shot, so to speak. But, you know, it took just enough of a step to turn it into DeMar shot, which was an inefficient long two, uh, fractionally like an inch or two short of being a three. It's like, damn it, DeMar. Just just shoot the fucking three, for Christ's sakes. But the Lakers want anybody but Portland, is my guess. Um, I, I don't know that for a fact. Perhaps they feel that they match up really well, but the fact of the matter is, me looking at it, Portland, okay, fine. The top-end talent of the Lakers is better. Take LeBron over Dame, sure. Take AD over CJ, sure. And then after that, find me a Laker that you take over Nurkic uh, or Carmelo or hell Gary Trent Jr. Up until the past two games, but Gary Trent Jr. has been playing really well. Danny Green has been very un-Danny Green-like. Just, you know, he had a couple uh, clutch threes in that last game, but it's been so bad that post-game, man, Lakers Twitter comes out, just pitchforks and, and torches, to raid his house and burn him at the stake. Just, and that's, that's who you need. Uh, Kuzma is your third best option and he has been shooting really well, but I know what I'm going to get from Carmelo Kuzma is still, I need to see that in the playoffs and there's less pressure on him, but they need him to be the third best on the team. And as LeBron put it third best on the team, or if he's having a bad night or AD's having a bad night, the second best on the team. Or I guess hypothetically in that case, if they're both having a bad night, he needs to step up and be the best player on the team. And I don't know if Kuzma can do that, whereas Melo's 
was the number one option for the majority of his career up until his time at OKC and now Portland. It was the mellow show. And as much as you want to harangue mellow, nothing, you know, nothing was born out of that. They never, he never really uh, traveled all that far in the playoffs outside of one year early on in New York. And when he was a young kid in Denver before he forced himself into a trade. But I think that was more, Carmelo forcing himself to the Knicks instead of just doing it in free agency, thereby making the Knicks send out all the assets they had to Denver. And now Carmelo cannot be surrounded with young, uh, talented guys on cheaper contracts and then fill in with veterans to basically plug any kind of holes that these young kids couldn't do just because Melo wanted to get that max money with the extra year from the Knicks. Uh, it was seemingly on the outside as someone who is not Carmelo Anthony. It seemed purely motivated by getting all the money he possibly could and playing on the team that he wanted uh, assets be damned instead of just being, just taking the one extra year in Denver instead of forcing yourself out and going to New York as a free agent. And they still would have had all those assets and they could have made trades and made moves to acquire guys that are on the same timeline that they would add sacrifice draft picks and, you know, any kind of salary matching shit as opposed to what they, they forced them to do. But that aside, I think Mello Mello is a better option to me right now than Kuzma. And Nurkic is better than JaVale, is better than Dwight, is better than any other big besides AD that they're going to throw at him. Um, I don't buy into Deion Waiters. J.R. Smith is not getting much run as of right now. They'll it'll It'll be advantageous for them to get Rondo back. Uh, but with no Avery Bradley... You know, they needed that extra defense on the wing to help shut down other defenders. So the Lakers want anybody but because I think they have a, a chance of sweeping or going four four one against any of those other teams except for Portland. And Portland, I could see them taking uh taking them to seven. Um so here is how the eighth seed the race for the eighth seed is going to go. Portland controls their own fate. They play Brooklyn in this next game. If they win, they secure the eighth seed. Done. Now, if they lose, they need everybody else to lose, and they keep the eighth seed. All right? Now, here's where it gets super confusing. It's not really super confused, but you can find this at uh, sports.yahoo.com, and it's uh, breaking down the NBA playoff scenarios, and they've got they've got it all laid out, right? So the remaining schedule is is Memphis against Milwaukee. Mil Milwaukee has no Giannis, but they were never really going to play him and Middleton and other guys. So Memphis needs to beat, you know, Dante DiVincenzo and uh, the second run guys, the second unit guys in order to secure a win. And if Phoenix wins, they get the ninth seed so long as Portland, uh, you know, wins. 
Portland loses, Memphis wins, Memphis bumps up and they get the eighth seed. And then it becomes a whole context of, okay, so if Portland wants to maintain the ninth seed, if they lose, they need two of the following teams, Memphis, Phoenix, and San Antonio to lose. So any of those two teams lose, Portland gets the ninth seed. Um, if all those teams win, Portland now drops down and they're out of the playoffs if they lose their next game. Once again, they're playing Brooklyn. And they can't beat Brooklyn in this glorified G League team that Brooklyn is going to be rolling out. That They don't deserve to make it in anyway. Um, so if So that's basically... Portland dictates all terms in regards to their future. They are in the driver's seat. They win and they're in. They lose and two other teams uh, lose. Then they're in. Otherwise, you know, adios muchacho. Um, now, if Memphis, like I said before, Memphis needs to win um, and they secure their spot. If it's going to be Portland versus Memphis in that, that play-in game, then Portland needs to win. Memphis needs to win. Um, if Phoenix wants to make it into the ninth seed, Memphis needs to lose. Phoenix needs to win. Now, the, the problem is if both Memphis and Phoenix win, Memphis has the tiebreaker. They went 3-1 and one against them, I believe, in the regular season this year. So Phoenix needs Memphis to lose flat out. It's the only way Phoenix has any shot of making this in. Um, and San Antonio has played fewer games. So they need everybody else to lose in order to jump in to this mix. Um, so Phoenix needs Memphis to lose. And then they make it in if they win. And Phoenix plays Dallas. That's that's not good for them. Who knows what Dallas is going to be doing at that point because they're going to be uh, locked in at their current position. What sucks for them is they played more games Dallas has than anybody, and they have, in essence, just as many wins as the four, five, six teams. I think Houston has one more win, and uh, Utah and OKC have the same number of wins. But by virtue of the fact that they play more games, they have more losses. So it drops them lower. They could end up hypothetically with more wins than the other teams, but because they'll ultimately have more losses, they're going to stay in the seventh seed. So do you play a lot of minutes for Doncic and Porzingis? I'm not entirely sure. Um, still, though, a tough game because my guess is Doncic and Porzingis will play some, and then San Antonio has Utah to close out. Um, so. Memphis, you win and you're in. Portland, you win and you're in. Phoenix, you know, you need to win. And either Memphis loses or Portland loses. Um, San Antonio, San Antonio can get in. They can keep, I wonder if this would count for playoffs, but this would keep their playoff hopes alive. If Phoenix wins and Portland and, and uh, uh, Memphis lose. If that happens and San Antonio wins, San Antonio is in now in the ninth seed. 
I mean, it's confusing as shit, but ultimately it comes down to San Antonio only has one route in or two routes. If everybody above them loses and they win, they're in. And at that point, then Portland would be the ninth seed. Uh, or no. Yeah, I'd have to look. I think they might maintain the ninth seed and Portland would stay at the eighth because they're a half game up or anyway, either way. Um, so the driver's seat in this are Portland and Memphis, and they both have games that are completely winnable. And Phoenix and San Antonio have harder games that could still win. Phoenix could go 8-0 in the bubble and get iced out of the playoffs. It's possible. It is possible. Um, and it's kind of demoralizing for them. They did the unthinkable. They were a team that I and almost everybody else worth their salt felt like should not have been invited them and the wizards to me when we started all this like this is ridiculous why are you inviting these two teams they have no real shot and now phoenix could sneak in and i i hope they do memphis is not memphis if they had triple j then i'd be, I'd be pulling for memphis just because they proved it throughout the entire regular season and to me, it's a little bit more deserving um, because of that, because, you know, they've managed to do this and they've been holding on to the eighth seed. They had the eighth seed coming into this and they looked legit. So I was pulling for Memphis, but now that they're out, I wouldn't mind seeing Phoenix. I got nothing against San Antonio, but it'd be nice to have some new blood in the playoff mix. Um, and you've had a hell of a run, San Antonio. So. I'm not rooting against you, but at the same time. Uh, another comment from Daniel Suava. I'm a Knicks fan, so to see them uh, decapitate the team and future for Carmelo still pisses me off to this day. Yeah, it should. It really should. In in the moment, watching it, I was like, why are you having them sacrifice? Did we learn nothing from previous history? I think like... Uh, um, New Orleans apparently learned nothing from watching what happened with LeBron and Cleveland the first time because Cleveland had all these assets and kept sending them out to bring in average veterans, sacrificing draft picks and their future flexibility to bring in decent veterans to surround with LeBron because it was this somehow this win-now mentality when you should take a slower approach and try and draft young guys and build a young core around them a la OKC before OKC um, was basically blown up. Because then your setting, it's a blueprint for domination of the league for a decade. And then New Orleans was doing it with Anthony Davis. It's not surprising that Davis wanted out of there because ultimately it came to, okay, if I resign with you and I look at our long-term future and health of this organization, I don't see us winning a championship with our current asset structure and salary cap. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But so that race to the eighth, it's going to be, I can't wait. I can't wait. Tomorrow is going to be a hell of a day uh, watching all these games unfold. Tomorrow, Thursday, and then Friday. Friday, I'll be doing another Dimes. Uh, tentatively, I've got a guest lined up for that one. But in the future, I'll announce. Like next Wednesday, I've got Ellis coming on. Um, but my guest on Friday is still trying to hammer down his schedule and free up the time to come on at noon. Um, he wants to. And if he can't on this week, then... We'll figure out another time, you know, doing these twice a week. Uh, 
The other thing, interesting thing that came out today is the rules for allowing family members and friends and whatnot into the bubble once the playoffs begin. So it'll be after the first round uh, into the second, you can start bringing in friends and family and, you know, so the way it's, it's been detailed as of right now, the players will be allowed to bring in family and quote unquote established longstanding personal friends into the bubble. Now, the guidelines on the guests starting after the first round of the playoffs per NBA sources are four guests per player that could be uh, exceeded four children. So if you have four guests and you've got, you know, four kids, well, the four kids don't count towards the four guests. And the guests can travel on team charters following testing and guests will be allowed to attend games. Each player is allowed one ticket per playoff game for a guest plus an additional um, admission for a child who is 32 inches and below. It's weird. I guess the Disney influence there, you can be this tall to watch this game. Um, and then here, who, who's not eligible or any individual, the player has not previously met in person or with whom the players had limited in-person interactions. For example, known by the player only through social media or an intermediary. And among those not allowed as player guests are, quote unquote, current or prospective staff or business relationships, including agents, trainers, massage and physical therapists, personal chefs, tattoo artists. And as some people have pointed out, that does not exclude strippers. So Lou Will, who has a sandwich or something, some food, I don't know, actually, I think they're wings named after him at that strip club in Atlanta. Well, if he has a longstanding personal relationship with that stripper, perhaps he can pay to have her quarantined in there. And the, what I read earlier is the way that they're going to do this is they have to be tested off-site and then flown down on a team charter, and then they'll be sequestered for 14 days off of Disney campus, and then they can come on to the campus complex Starting the earliest date will be August 31st, so 19 days from now. Um, and it's also, you know, what if certain family members come down and they begin the quarantine process and their loved one doesn't make the second round? Uh, you know, it's nice that they came down to support, but at the same time, you just wasted <laughs> all that time. I hope you enjoyed the hotel at Disneyland. Because that's the other restriction. If you come on to the NBA's campus, you are not allowed to go to the park. You are not allowed to leave. You don't have the freedom of movement because you're going to be interacting with players and those players interact with other players and whatnot. You need to be on lockdown just like everybody else. You'll be going under the same protocols, living under the same protocols. You'll be asked to or forced to rather, uh, required to, I guess, would be the more accurate, uh, wear masks everywhere. Um, you know, you can't Dwight Howard this and just take it off and say that you don't believe in vaccines and this is all a sham and they're trying to control us and put tracking chips in us and all that shit. And as numerous people have pointed out, we've already opted into that program by having cell phones. So if we want to be tracked or eavesdropped or have someone eavesdrop on us or uh, videotape us or take our picture, uh, they can do that 
whenever they wanted to. They just need to tap into our phone. And so we're being tracked already. Big Brother is watching at all times. So much so that the other day, my wife and I had an offhanded conversation uh, about an oat milk that uh, uh, she brought home because it was an extra that her sister had and said, hey, give it a whirl because I have smoothies in the morning and I just switched to oat milk to just mix things up. And the next day I had ads all over uh, everything when I logged on for that very specific brand of milk. And I only uttered the name of it once when I grabbed it, she handed it to me and I was like, Oh, such and such. So big brother is watching and listening at all times as disconcerting as that is. It's not going to stop. So Dwight Howard, your fear of being followed and tagged and tracked and, you know, all the other conspiracy theories via a vaccine, it's already happened. So the families will be let in. Um, I'll be curious as to whether or not if they open up even more people uh, allowed in. So like maybe that one person plus one child type of thing in the second round. Uh, but in the third round, maybe they let in two people and two kids. And just to kind of create some sort of atmosphere overall. Although... I don't want it to interfere with the bubble environment in regards to the games that we're experiencing now. It's pretty fantastic to watch. And there's all kinds of subtle advantages now that teams didn't have in the past, which I brought up on other shows, like Brad Stevens talking about how Chris Paul was so loud and boisterous that he was dictating the mentality and the overall feeling of the game itself just by force of his voice and will. And that's super interesting. Does that give finally Chris Paul the type of advantage and then do bringing in family members and whatnot stop him or inhibit any of these players from expressing themselves in any kind of way? Um, but I do love the incorporation of the Frids and family. I think the best to date so far was, uh, I believe it was last night on the introductions for the Phoenix Suns and on the starting intros, they had a video package and it was friends and family of all the various starters. So it starts with like DeAndre Aiden and it ends with Devin Booker, but doing their intros. Um, and some of them are, are just a single individual. DeAndre Aiden, it was a little girl, Mikael Bridges. It was a woman, uh, Ricky Rubio. It had, three different sets of individuals and the final one looked like potentially his dad and maybe his nephew or his son or something like that closing out. Um, but it was a nice little touch. You could see it move the players and it was a great incorporation of those that they're missing by sequestering themselves down in Orlando to close out this season, um, you know, to protect the NBA salary structure and CBA as a whole, but also to entertain us, those starved for it, sitting at home. And, you know, you don't want to hear a player bellyache about how hard this is. Because you're still making a tremendous salary. You're living in a, a very nice hotel, much as... Uh, Rondo may have bitched and said we called it a Motel 8 when he first got in there. Looked as nice as damn near any hotel I've ever stayed in. Uh, all your meals are taken care of. You have 
health screenings every day. You have access to the best medical technology in the world. Um, you know what is going to be super interesting about this that I was thinking about last night uh, watching that Suns game is Rubio has a tan. And I don't know if, if any uh, non-white person out there has ever thought about this, but late in the playoffs when it's in the middle of the summer, you can, you can always – there's a great little thing within the – NBA players have not been able to go out in the sun and enjoy themselves. So most of the white guys are pasty as fuck in July, just white as can be where the rest of us watching have a nice tan. Uh, I remember watching, you know, one of the um, uh, Bulls jazz, I think it was the final one, the sixth championship. And I was on vacation with my parents and I had sunburn and sitting there and I'm watching a pasty Kerr and a pasty Judd Butchler, um, but Rubio's got a nice tan because these guys have off. Like if you listen to the JJ Reddick podcast, he's like, there's, you have a tremendous amount of time off during the day that it's not now filled with, you know, uh, uh, playing with your kids or doing all the, the mundane things that you have in your day-to-day life. Now it's like, I go read or I go fishing or I go play golf. And I'm out now. These guys are out in the sun because they have the time off and we're going to see white guys with tans in the playoffs. I don't know if that's ever happened in my entire life as an NBA basketball player. It's going to be kind of weird to see because I'm just used to the pastiness. That to me is a playoff basketball. Um, but it's an anomalous and, and, and unique situation. Um, and like I said, you don't want to hear the players complain about it. But they are sacrificing. They are away from family. They're kids. Um, some are going to leave for the birth of their children. Like Gordon Hayward has already said that his, his, uh, I believe it's son is what he announced is due in September. And if they're still playing in September, he's leaving. And man, what, I mean, if you are legitimately, what if you are in the championship hunt? Because if you leave, you have to get tested every day when you leave and then you come back, you're quarantined for, I believe it's four days. And that amount of time, even if you only leave for one day, that's five days out. So that's going to be two games that you're going to miss pretty much guaranteed unless it happens a timeout where you sweep and your next round opponent goes to seven games. So you get a couple extra days and hypothetically, maybe you only miss one game or just the practice in between. That would be the best case scenario and fully understand why Gordon Haywood would do it. But me, if I was a Celtics fan, kind of watching and be like, you're going to see your kid in three weeks. I realize this is difficult and you don't want to tell them that, but damn it, you're already doing all of this. Why wouldn't you just take the extra three weeks? It's not going to make any difference to the child, but that's selfish as shit. Yeah. I don't know how you combat that. You would hope as a Celtics fan that his wife would just go, you need to stay. You put in too much work coming back from injuries. You want to prove all the people wrong. You need to stay. Um, but what if like there's a death in the family? I mean, hell, the Clippers have been ravaged by that. Pat Beverly lost a close friend, a guy that lived with him and his family when he was in high school, I believe. Um, just two and a half, three weeks ago was shot. Um, Montrez Harrell's grandmother passed away and Lou Williams lost a, uh, a man that's been credited as as his mentor and that happened before the bubble began but that's real life and someone dies like that to me seems unavoidable to to leave and go 
to pay your final respects to an individual that may have meant the entire world to you. But how do you, the push and pull there, that's got to be insanely difficult. I don't know. This, this entire context and situation is distinctly unique, but it's also made for a wildly engaging product for those just watching and have no stakes in the games outside of wanting to, to be engaged with NBA basketball again, just like those watching and listening uh, to this. I mean, shit, I am talking by myself in my house, um, wrote notes out for this. I have a page and a half of notes of all kinds of different things uh, I want to discuss. Um, and I do that for most, you know, almost every show. I kind of, it's an excuse to go deep dive and go into basketball reference and uh, go through the stats uh, functionality of NBA.com and go to three, four, five other websites that I thoroughly enjoy. And plus I listen to anyway, but I'm sitting in my house alone, just talking basketball into the void. I can see by the, the count on the stream that, you know, some of you are watching along with, perhaps you're doing chores around the house, whatnot, and, and, uh, or at work, no idea, but you just want to talk basketball too. So the situation has been riveting for me. I, I watch minimum a game and a half to two games a day. Um, some of it is, is on in the background as I'm trying to do other things, but I don't do those things all that well successfully, but there have been days where I do nothing else other than watch bas basketball because I lined up my schedule and I've cleared it entirely. And I just put the work on the, the next day and the, the previous day because the matchups are just so good, especially those first two days. I didn't do shit else on the 30th and 31st. I watched basketball for the entire, well, the 30th, there was no entire day, but I watched those two games and then the next day, day's full slate of games. Um, so, I understand the push and pull and I understand how difficult it can be for these athletes, but they're putting on a show for us. They are trying hard. I mean, this is March madness mixed with basketball camp. Um, the likes of which we're never going to see again, even if they do a modified bubble for next season, which they're talking about doing just having, well, they're talking about doing in that I've seen proposals and read proposals that have uh, been floated of, having a few centralized cities and teams stay there for a while. And then they kind of fly out and go to another centralized location type of thing. Like Los Angeles would be one because we have the courts for it and we have the hotels and a bunch of players have homes here anyway. Um, but it's going to be difficult. You know, I don't know how the NFL actually pulls this off given the roster sizes of those teams and the fact that shit now Jerry Jones is saying that he is determined to play games in front of fans in Cowboy Stadium. It's like, dude, fuck off, man. You're going to fill that massive cavernous stadium with people? Oh, I, I yeah. So I, I don't know how the NFL does it, and I'm not sure how the NBA does it next season without some sort of modified bubble-type situation. They'll try. They're going to push, but the vaccine's not going to be ready. I uh, would tell you this, the pharmaceutical company that is running out, uh, is it Pfizer that's running out the first hundred million? I'm guessing the NBA and other, every other sports league is going to get quite a few of those. Um, got another comment from Eric Ritz before we close out here. It says, I watch a minimum a game to a game and a half every week. <laughs> and a little emoji, um, or, uh, emoji rather of uh, the grimacing face. 
but he only watches the Bucks. So, yeah, we got some Bucks fans on the stream today. Um, more than one. It's you and uh, Eric. Oh, no, that's the same. Eric Ritz. I apologize, Eric. Um, well, I mean, Eric, I, I work from home. So, especially right now, um, I don't have a day job. I haven't had a day job since I was 20. Well, my mid-20s, uh, thankfully, uh, between comedy and comedy and podcasting and uh, doing some commercial work. Uh, which, by the way, if you wanted to get into commercial work, you do not need to be a good actor uh, at all. I got told that by guys that book, and they're like, you think you could be good in front of a camera? Because uh, I was a comedian, and they were comedians, and I was like, man, I think so. And they're like, yeah, so do I. So that's all you need. You don't need to be a good actor. And uh, trust me, you don't. Nobody is day-lewising uh, on the set of a commercial. You're just not. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, thankfully my, my schedule is a little bit more open and I am able to watch more basketball. I, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate in that regard and I'm thankful for it. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. These next couple of days to watch how everything pans out with the eighth seed. I mean, if Portland and Memphis lose, they got the two gimme games and Phoenix and San Antonio win. It just upends the entire idea of what everybody assumed coming into this um, ends up being. It'll be crazy. Like it, it's, it's entirely possible. Did anybody in their right mind see Portland rattling off seven straight wins, their longest win streak since the 2009, 2010 season fucking 10 years ago. It's been a decade since they won this many games straight. Nobody saw that coming. I mean, they started the season and they were what, like uh, six and three at one point. And everybody was like, oh, Phoenix. And then they became Phoenix again. And they did exactly what we thought. You know, it's what the Phoenix does. And then now to see this, it's like it's been mind blowing. And the, the Spurs just holding on, just holding on, man. Can they keep their active playoff streak alive? Who knows? You know. Portland wanting to prove that last year was not a fluke making the conference finals, that they're a legit team, that Dame is a, a premier superstar in this league. And I love the eruption of on Twitter last night of uh, that. You know what? I take Dame over Steph now. And you're like, all right, let's let's not go too far here. Dame has had some impressive uh, last second shots in the playoffs. And the guy's a cold blooded killer. But to say that he's better than Steph. I'm sorry. That's that's a bridge too far. Now, him the people saying he's better than Kyrie. All right. There's a discussion that I think is legitimate and worth having as to who th you think is better. But I think Steph lords above both. Steph is the best shooter, pure shooter I've seen. Flat out. I've been watching basketball pretty consistently now for 33, 34, maybe 35 years. And I don't remember anybody remotely like Steph. There are guys who can get hot. There were great shooters, but nobody that changed. I mean, he changed the game flat out. Think about it now. There would be no Houston if there wasn't a Steph. There would be no teams routine, routinely shooting 40, 50 threes in a night if there was no Steph. Dame would not be allowed to pull up from half court and no one bats an eye. Booker now does it. And no one bats an eye. Uh, PG. There's that one where he's, uh, was that? Is that in OKC or is that in, I think it's in Indiana, where he does a little arm push. Like, 
he kind of tells his team to settle down a little bit. And then the defender takes an extra step back and backs off and he's damn near at half court. And he launches a three. This was 10 years ago. His coach, the announcers, the fan base, even if he made it would have been crying foul saying that's a terrible shot. Don't ever shoot that again. And now we're so accustomed to the ability of these guys to launch from long range that you don't even bat an eye at it. Um, so Steph has changed the game. And if he got the volume of shots that Harden did, I that's what my hope for this year was with Clay being out, they're gonna need him to step up. So he is gonna have to take on the lion's share of the shooting from that. So he's gonna get the volume numbers that Harden does. And will his efficiency actually hold through? And now we can have an argument or a discussion between, you know, because a lot Harden fans say, well, he's asked to do so much more. It's like, okay, well, now Step this year has been asked to do that. And let's see what if if his efficiency on those shooting numbers end up staying roughly the same, because then it then it's a qualitatively he is a better shooter and uh, you know, more advantageous to have if you want to be a championship team. But we didn't get to have that discussion. And I think that's that is the discussion for today. I'm looking forward to uh the next few days games and thank you to everybody that jumped in. Look, we're, and I say, we we're a small little channel and it's an excuse legitimately for me to watch more basketball. <laughs> That's it. I just contrived a way to watch more basketball. I did it at collider. Uh, we were doing sports time. There was a discussion. Eventually I just said, Hey, I'd like to do a basketball show because then it just creates the excuse for me to watch even more basketball than I already do. And uh, Mark was like, yeah, go for it. And uh, boom, got to do a show. Um, and uh, trying to free up the schedule to have Mark on. Um, and right now he's a little too busy with everything that's going on. Them trying to juggle everything over there, but he wants to come on. So we will find a week for that to happen. Two shows a week. Fernandez will be on. There is no bad blood between us. Um, I just came to the realization that I'm the only sports show here. And people tune into this channel for a movie and TV talk, not for sports. Um, and those of you that found me there, I love it. It's awesome that the Venn diagram overlaps, but the overlap wasn't so huge as to justify to me staying there. Um, so I might as well just do this on my own. Plus, I get to dictate the schedule. Uh, and that to me is, you know, ultimately the best even though I've said it at noon on, on Wednesdays and Fridays, making the decision and knowing, and as, as opposed to having to schedule the specific studio time, uh, it works better for me, but who cares? That's neither here nor there, but I'm working. We're working together, trying to figure out his schedule. And hopefully I've got that guest by Friday. Once again, I don't want to say the name um, because I'll have them on in the future. Just need to work out schedules. Um, but it's also nice to see that uh, my friends are, are busy, that they're not, now, after all these months, just stuck at home, like projects are picking back up for them and uh, they're able to get out and work again to some degree. Um, so that's good. Uh, it hurts this show getting uh, fans on or getting guests on a little bit, but so be it. So that's it this week for Dropping Dimes. If, um, you know, if you want to leave a comment below on uh, YouTube, uh, that's awesome. I, I will uh, make a habit of reading those and trying to respond to every show. Um, and if you'd like to subscribe, great. 
If not, you just want to tune in and listen every once again, so be it. I'm happy to have you here for the conversation. Um, if you're listening, uh, thank you so much. If you want to leave a rating wherever you listen, that'd be awesome. If you don't want to, don't sweat it. If you want to subscribe, once again, great, wherever you're listening. If you don't, don't sweat it. Um, I'm just here to have fun, just to talk NBA, and I'm thankful for anybody that wants to come with and have that discussion with me. That's it for this week, for today's episode of uh, Dropping Dimes. I'll see you guys on Friday at noon Pacific Standard Time, and until then, let's just enjoy the hell out of these next few days games basketball, of basketball rather, can't even speak. That's it. Adios. I'm Matt Nost. See you Friday. Thank you.